0: This is Circulating Ideas episode number 220. My name is Steve Thomas and I have two guests today. Dr. Taslin Magnuson who is an author and researcher and John Kraska who is the executive director at Every Library and Every Library Institute. Circulating Ideas is brought to you with support from listeners just like you. Find out how you can help support the show by going to circulatingideas.com/support and don't forget to sign up for the Circulating Ideas newsletter more about today's guests. Taslin and John, welcome to Circulating Ideas. Steve, it is fun to be back with you. Thank you.
1: Excited to be here.
0: Taslin. can you tell listeners just a little bit about you and how you got to where you are now and the book censorship database that we will be discussing?
1: It's a funny story. The master's in a Writing for Children and Young Adults program, I met a lot of kid-lit authors and I started to listen to them. And Lori Hall Sanderson was talking about the growing book bands in probably September. She said someone should keep track. And I said, I can do that. I'm a poet. I'm a writer. I have a PhD in history. So I have a lot of varied skills. And I started to keep track. I was like, I'll just make a Google sheet. I'll share it with Laurie and see what we find. I began to listen to articles, newspapers, podcasts, people talking, Twitter, and started to put together a list that seemed to grow exponentially as we went along. And
0: was that an issue that you had already kind of been aware of? Or was it the author friends of yours that kind of? got it into your head
1: as a writer we talk about book bans and challenges and the, the critical importance of libraries especially to maintaining author support and i have librarians everywhere in my family so i was aware of it and i also have been tracking it through book riot they have a censorship newsletter and i read that regularly but yeah It was there, but not quite as heightened. And now I um, know just about everything I can.
0: Well, that's why you're on today. (laughs) Before we get too much into your work, John, can you give us a little bit of an update about what every library has been up to and how this work um, on book challenges and censorship and bans fits into the work of every library?
2: Sure. So as some folks know, we have two components to our work where every library is the 501C4 uh, political action committee for libraries. That work as a C4 focuses on the funding formula and the political structure for libraries. Last year, we did about 10% of the library election days in 2021. We're expecting to do about 10% of them this year in 2022. Good outcomes for folks, the, the everyday work, helping to support libraries, in these political conversations around funding with the voters, with school boards, we've done a, a tremendous amount of work in the last couple of years on the Save at School Librarians platform and initiatives. The political conversations in uh, state houses as well, supporting several of our state library association partners. We have launched two statewide initiatives and one statewide pilot program alongside the folks in Delaware. The uh, Wyoming Library Association, and then the pilot programs with Montana Library Association. It's a lot of activity facing voters, constituents, and elected officials. And then our C3 side, the Library Institute, which is our nonprofit research, public policy, tax policy, think tank. We're working on the reports around literacy. That's a big topic for us. How to help policymakers understand where funding for public libraries can support literacy, which supports a lot of other outcomes like reduced crime rates better health outcomes, uh, economic determination, and then a lot on the the post-COVID school environment as well. So between those two things, we're looking at a lot of conversations around the political and the policy outcomes, which is why I think we've been getting calls from people when the politics turns really performative around these book banning and challenge situations. We're not looking to do anything that an existing incumbent organization is already doing. Intellectual freedom has a very strong very consistent and and, and very successful group of supporters in the library community. When folks call us, it's when something really terrible happens and it turns into a fight either about the funding for the library, you know, they're going after the library directly when the book ban is a a, a mask for it or or an excuse for it, or it's the, the leading wedge to try and decouple the library from its own community or in the school setting where folks who seem to be maybe anti education, anti union anti-public education, are uh, using those books uh, to come after both the school library libraries, a wedge issue, but also most perniciously, the people that those books represent, those kids, those families. So it's a weird situation for us. It's not a usual one. I don't want to do this forever, Steve. I really just want to get back to like doing election days. That being said, I want to help every library's position to do that when it becomes politicized because... You got to answer it with a different vocabulary than just the First Amendment's great.
0: Right, right. It really fits in with a previous guest that you helped hook me up with, Donald Cohen of The Public Mm -hmm. Good, and how people
2: don't really appreciate the public good anymore. (laughs) There's several vectors, and I think Taslin has some good insights into some of these different vectors. You know, Steve, I got to be honest with you, I really respect anyone in any community who wants to step up and say, I've got a question about the propriety of this book. The First Amendment by itself is not impinged by somebody saying, I have a question about this book. It's actually reinforced because there's two parts of the First Amendment. There's all the issues around freedom of expression, freedom of speech, freedom of access. And then there's also the other part of it, which is the right to petition our government, the right to assemble and have conversations about what future do we want for our democracy? And if you're talking like Mr. Cohen was about the public library or public education, That's part of our democracy. We have to be willing to receive those conversations. What I'm talking about and what Taslin's been tracking is the stuff that gets weaponized against the structures and gets performative about the stories that are being told. Taslin, can you talk about how that fits in with
0: what fed you to want to make this spreadsheet? When people pointed at you in this direction, you saw this exponential growth. What was behind that for you?
1: Well, at first, when I was collecting information, it's clear that authors were paying attention and were alarmed. So that was part of what drove me to start counting. I was just curious, is it happening more often? Where is it happening? Who is doing it? And how is it happening? And so I started to look a little bit more closely and realized, in general, (laughs) there are set policies and procedures in school libraries. Nearly all of them have them that are based on ALA's best recommended practices and so on. But they weren't being followed in many of these challenges. And in fact, people were coming in and reading probably very tiny, out-of-context paragraphs showing, coming in with color copies of pictures from books to distribute. And they weren't ever filing a um, formal complaint with the school and the school was getting nervous and worried and schools are under immense pressure right now to cope in general and so they were choosing to pull the books or there's several places where they've amended the policy at the board level that allows the superintendent to make some decisions about books that did not happen before this but probably the thing that was most interesting that i started to see and i've seen it in a number of districts is in early fall a parent will submit a challenge it'll go through kind of a normal procedure at the beginning of the school year but by december and january of this school year they turn around and the same parent in several instances submitted 282 challenges or more two books and they're identical They're filled out exactly the way they're supposed to be filled out with exactly the same reasons why and exactly the same request, which is always to remove the book from the entire district, not about their kid. There's also quite a number of parents who are refusing alternative assignments, which has always been a solution to these problems in schools. They can set it up so you can say whether or not your kid can check out a book. And they don't want to do that either. And so I've been looking really closely at these districts. And I think that that's a really important thing to look at because it's clearly taking steps towards using the challenge process in a way that will destroy the school because no school can (laughs) work through 282 challenges. And there is a district in Illinois that is tracking the money associated with these as well which is also probably something I'd love to see more libraries start to do.
0: Well, it'd be great if there was some way to like interlock all this data, like the data that you're doing and the data with the money and see how this stuff overlaps. Obviously, we all know follow the money is a good way to figure out what's going on behind anything. You mentioned that the same person making the complaints. I know on your spreadsheet, you are doing a very good job of keeping personal information out of that. But are you keeping track of that? So, like, that's not in the database that these 200 were by the same person. Do you have that identified somewhere?
1: I have been keeping a second list that includes groups and leaders in those groups and how they might relate to groups that are popping up to opposing books in schools. I would love the time to do some deeper research. There is one group that I found. That in the county where they were operating, one of the parents is associated with a group that, in fact, wants to get rid of the Board of Education, which is far more common than I thought with many of these groups. Some of this is a learning curve of me learning a lot quickly about libraries and parents and how parents protest and what seems to be
0: appropriate. But this is all... A political thing. And we say that it seems to have come out of nowhere, but obviously it didn't because something this huge would not have just come out of nowhere. So there's got to be some kind of coordination at some point somewhere. You know, we don't want to get into conspiracy theory sounding things, but obviously there's got to be some kind of coordination because the same thing is happening all over the
2: place. Can I jump in on that answer, Tesla? to start with? Steve, it's interesting because right now when we're recording, it's uh, mid-March. Several state legislatures right now are considering bills that are deleterious to, to public libraries and, and school library programs. The governor of the state of Iowa has a five point plan to reform education, allegedly. And her fifth point in her five point plan is to eliminate the master's degree for school librarians. It is a live bill, it's active, and God bless us all if we don't overcome that problem. Kentucky has just passed a measure that would void the terms of every public library trustee and have the county judge reappoint them politically instead of apolitically. This is part of a whole cloth approach that may or may not have a conspiracy theory attached to it. But as a consistent approach, when the Trump administration came in, we didn't have to look very far here at every library to understand that they were going to cut IMLS in their first budget because the Heritage Foundation. And also, Paul Ryan, who was the previous uh, Speaker of the House, had called for it for years. The infrastructure here is something that we haven't been paying attention to as librarians because maybe we don't like that form of government, but they have been consistent and internally cohesive with their philosophy of government, philosophy of education as well. and you and I are talking the other day about how how far can we wind back the clock? How can we look at, at what's been reported before? As opposed to like going out and doing the deep dive and discovery and active research that you've been doing.
1: It is really interesting to look at these districts and ask questions about what was going on in the previous year or two or three years. And what I've seen in several districts is there was a fight over DEI initiatives. There was a fight over curriculum around reading whether it was K-8 or K-12, where they were bringing in books that felt different or uncomfortable or were associated with a strategic plan around the EI initiatives. And so those parents that were involved in that initial site, and there are plenty of organizations that are jumping into uh, Moms for Liberty certainly is one of them. And they are then already sort of talking (laughs) Mobilize and in several places, the DEI initiative was pulled back by the district. And so then the next year, they begin to see the rise of book challenges. Pennsylvania, a number of districts are dealing with that right now. And so there are parents who are like, What has happened? Well, the year before, several changes were made at the school district level that were responding to what I would say is probably a very loud. But very smaller group of people who don't always have the best interests of kids and education in mind. There might be an, an element of political issue there.
0: Well, a lot of it, it seems like they've looked at how things are going. They don't like how things are going. They realize those are the rules. So if you don't like the rules, go in and change the rules. <laughs> so you get yourself into a place where you're the one setting the rules. If you get rid of the Board of Education, if you get rid of these, um, policies that are saying we're going to focus on DEI issues, then all of a sudden you don't have to focus on them because you got rid of the rules.
1: Exactly. There have been several places in the last year that have seen a complete change in their school board. So moving from probably like a nonpartisan citizen, basically really hardworking volunteers who step into these roles. And then the people that are they're being replaced with are openly and willingly partisan. And they're beginning to change the rules. Another smaller element, not as strong as the DEI, but these are also parents who are mobilized by anti-mask, anti-vaccine. How did their school do with COVID? What do they want for their children in response to the COVID crisis?
2: It's interesting, Steve. On the public library side, there are fewer challenges relative to the size of the school library and school curriculum challenges in this 2021-2022 period. But the the challenges that are coming in on the public library side have two kinds of characteristics. One is somebody in town who legitimately is concerned about the book. And they've been seeing it in the newspaper. They've been hearing it on podcasts. And they want to know what's up. And they're coming in in good faith, and that's a really hard conversation for any library leadership team to have. But that's why we talk with each other about our value system and talk to the community about our hopes for collections. And then you got situations where people are coming in from out of town, or they're using the book challenges as a way to, again, break the library. In the middle of February, Ridgeland, Mississippi, it's one of four towns in the Madison County, Mississippi library system. The mayor of uh, Ridgeland said he's not going to pay the bills for the library. They owe $110,000 under contract to do this. He's not going to pay the bills unless all the homosexual books are removed. And then he wouldn't follow his oath of office and neither would the the board of aldermen, their city council, follow the, the, their oaths of office and actually pay their bills. Right now where we're sitting today, this is still happening down there. And it's not just Mississippi. It's coast to coast. It's north to south. The vector of attack right now Again, those legitimate, heartfelt, sincere, honest, and I'm using those terms with with a lot of weight to them because I admire them. Like I said before, you come to a school board meeting, you come to a library board meeting, you say, I got questions about this. That takes civic courage. And then to engage in a process that's open, transparent, and consistent, a policy framework that really guarantees not just first, but 14th Amendment rights about due process. Steve, I do it. that's America's finest, even though it's a hard conversation. It's these other ones, man. It's these other ones. People who
0: have kids understand you have concerns about your kids. But from the library point of view, it's okay, but that's your job as the parent to do that. It's not the library's job. People need that explained to them. They don't understand that. And so you need to have those conversations. So yeah, I agree. People just making a challenge. There's nothing wrong with that. The vast majority of time, it's just, please explain to me why you have this why is this okay to have in the collection? And again, a good library leadership team can provide that explanation.
2: When we get invited in to do something to support the integrity of the library, it's often when the integrity of the library is being impinged. You know, Policies aren't being followed. On the school library side, when the school board, the administration isn't following policies. The reason that we care about policy is that's our local version of the law. In school districts, You have a policy for kids who need individualized education support. You have policies that that protect kids who are in moments of transition, of crisis. You have policies that support uh, children with different kinds of uh, learning, cognitive disabilities, physical disabilities. I don't want to see the policy framework around school books and the curriculum fall apart. It's a leading edge problem. Same thing in public libraries. We have policies about accommodation. We have policies about behavior. We have policies about no fee, no favor. It's the, the core of who we are intending to be. At every library here, we leave it to, to the experts in the room. If a normal book challenge is going along, I got nothing to say about it. Everybody with integrity shows up to the process. They talk about the materials. They have a, a strong conversation in the community or on their campus. Great. For us, it's like, how do we get back to policy in these kinds of contexts? And we really work very hard to to name it for what it is, and to support those local folks, either behind the scenes or out in front with them, to name it for what it is, and to try and get back to a framework where the legitimacy of the process isn't being impinged. Yeah, I think we've
0: mentioned in the past that every library would love it if they could make themselves um, obsolete. Like,
2: yes. there's no need for something like every library. Yeah, no, Steve, thank you for remembering that. That's actually one of the things that, that I have a great deal of hope for. We sometimes talk about how we have our medical model on the political side. We have a nice practice. We have one library at a time, medical, a lot of patients, you know. Are you presenting good symptoms? or Are you healthy? Or are you presenting bad symptoms? We also have our public health model on the institute side, which is like policy issues, research, all that good public policy stuff, education policy stuff. That's like public health. So I could either work on one patient's cancer or I can outlaw smoking. That's great. The one thing that we don't do is pharmaceuticals. I'm not a toolkit kind of company. I know that everybody who we work with, we'd like to work ourselves out of the job. It's not just take a toolkit and I'll see you in the morning. And I love that you work with outside people like Dr. Magnuson. How did you guys get together? We met cute, Steve. So uh, (laughs) Dr. Magnuson's research was available. So when she says that it was a grassroots effort and I I admire her approach, she has a moral compass that's pointing in a very similar direction to to a lot of librarians as she was starting to to snowball this original research this digging into things going beyond just being reported to it started getting picked up by a lot of library groups and I was at the NJSOL meeting the New Jersey Association of School Librarians in December in Atlantic City and in between other things in Atlantic City I went to a program and uh, they were talking about the intellectual freedom framework they have a very strong intellectual freedom framework within New Jersey Association of School Librarians. And they put up a URL on the, on the screen that i never seen before saying, on this research, connects dots. There's research into the, the conversations that we're having. So I uh, sniffed around because I was like, who the heck is this? And then found out who it was and reached out and said, I think we might be on the same road. Do we want to see if it's a, it's a road trip together or not? So I did try and meet as cute as I could. That's my whole point in life. But I, I went and found her. Uh, to be honest and i'm glad i did because the contributions to this conversation with actionable intelligence has been extraordinary
1: i i just started posting the google link to people that i thought might be interested or it might help i was like i'm doing this let's, let's see what happens and people started to contact me and john was like we should talk and so when we met and he wanted to work with me i was like really Nobody's doing this already. Nobody's looking at it expansively nationally. I I have some flexibility and I was like, yeah, I want to help. I want to make a difference. And so that's kind of what I'm driven by.
2: And one of the other things that's true, Steve, is when you're you're looking to do, you know, coalition kind of partnership work, you're looking for folks who can who can bring something that's authentic. to to the process. And certainly the integrity of this uh, data development project is really interesting. We were just speaking to another coalition partner yesterday, the folks that we need diverse books. They're working on a data collection project around silent or soft or hidden shadow censorship that's going on where there's no school librarian to be the canary in the coal mine. There's no visibility to it. Things that are being done by omission rather than by making a, a fight out of it. And the We Need Diverse Books people are very sensitive to that. And I think that's an extremely important area of concern as well. I don't know if every library is necessarily the one that's equipped for that. I mean, we tend to do more political activities, but we want to support the stakeholders in the ecosystem because this is a whole cloth approach to civil society, to education, to the future of reading.
0: How do you generally collect your Data on this up to this point, and then do you have a way for people to contact you to provide this data if they come across your link?
1: Okay, so it started literally because I could Google, and I started to key into people who were also looking at these things. And Kelly Jensen at Book Riot, she has a regular, sort of weekly, I think, list of everything that was happening, and I didn't want to duplicate efforts, so. I talked to her really early on and like, do you analyze these? And she's like, no, I'm so busy. Censorship is about that much of my job, but this is really important. You should do what you're doing. And so I began to get some links from her. I learned better how to use Google alerts. I think probably 99% of the material on there is all publicly sourced. So if you want to go in, I'm a little chaotic with links, but I try to do it. You can go in, you can link, and you can find where I found the information. I have some librarians that send me information, but usually I can find other information publicly that matches what they're telling me. I would love to have more information and talk to people. I've made lots of great librarian friends. I find that they really often really need someone to talk about this with. Like, it's really, really hard. It's difficult. It's painful for them. And even going through these political experiences, that's not what they're prepared to do. And so I will talk with them and reassure them that actually, what my research shows is that when you stick to policy, your books go through the right channels, are reviewed. That's your protection. So the more you can get your administration to support you in the policy, the better off you'll be. And so if people want to send me stuff, I'm really available on Twitter. <laughs> I'm, they can email me. They can message me through the Google doc. I think my email is really easy. It's just taps We <laughs> can't hide with a name like mine. And so I'm happy to receive information and to talk to people about it. I think that it's really important to keep conversations going. And to listen to what folks who are experiencing these challenges are doing. These parents who challenge and come from such a very legitimate place, sometimes these groups swoop in, and then begin to use their real concerns for their kids in ways that are pretty awful and pretty difficult and very politicized quickly. So you might have a parents or two who then quickly become almost grabbed and brought into a group. And that, I think, is an area that somebody, not me and my Google Sheets, really needs to start to look into. Because I do agree that parents have a legitimate right to talk to the places that their kids are and ask questions. And some of them have very, very real concerns. And that's okay. That's part of what we do. We talk to people. We have conversation. And we have policies and procedures that help us have those conversations in a way that educates and makes sense.
2: The transparency, the integrity of the library community around this is always heartening to me. What we want to be able to do with every library is show up when things get really off the rails. And I appreciate you giving us a little bit of a platform to talk about how we could show up for some folks if they need to help. The last thing I'd like to mention is that A lot of the times the way that we inside the library industry, the library sector, the library community, the way that we talk is a lot more progressive than the way some of our audiences hear us. And I always want to make sure that when we're, we're talking about the First Amendment, it's not just about the access issues and the lowering barriers thing, but it's also about the core of our democratic society, our civil society. And I don't think there's anything about that that is varied from a progressive agenda or progressive ideal. But I want to ask us to to think a little bit more about how what we're talking about with these issues is going to be received by folks who might look at it with with a different political lens than we do. Yeah.
0: And then Taslin mentioned how listeners can get in touch with her. How can people get in touch with you, John?
2: We are either ubiquitous or notorious at uh, everylibrary.org, everylibraryinstitute.org, save school librarians.org at every library on the Twitters, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So love to chat with folks, about a lot of different things. So Steve, thanks for for doing this today.
0: You're welcome. And us Steves and Johns don't know what it's like to be able to get a, your first name at gmail.com. <laughs> <laughs> never heard of a before.
1: Nope. There's actually only about five Taslins in the world. I know them all.
0: Cool.
1: I made a point of it. <laughs>
0: Well, thank you both for coming on. I appreciate it. And I hope people um, go and look at that database and help contribute to your research.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Be well, Steve. Circulating Ideas is produced in the suburbs of Atlanta. Views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect those of my place of work or the place of work of guests. For past interviews, visit circulatingideas.com and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or your podcast app of choice and help others find the show by leaving a rating or a review. To learn more about this episode's guest, sign up for the Circulating Ideas newsletter. You can find the link in the show notes or on the site. Theme music is by Pamela Clicka, and the logo is by Shandy Fry. Thank you for listening, and keep circulating your ideas.